We are talking today about Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals us. That word Rapha is used about 54 times throughout the Old Testament to speak of healing. It's only used one time in all of Scripture specifically as Jehovah Rapha, God our healer, God the one who heals. And that's in Exodus 15. And we're going to look at that in a few moments, but before that, I believe that in order to understand this name today, uh, the, the context and the, the background behind this amazing name, I want to begin with a theology, uh, a biblical theology and understanding of, of healing before we jump in, because healing, I believe, is one of those areas that uh, people are all over the map, churches are all over, all over the map in terms of what they believe and what they apply in terms of their theology. So number one in your outline is a biblical theology of healing. That's where I want to start today, looking at both Old Testament and New Testament to determine what, what is a balanced, healthy view of healing in the Bible and according to the polity and beliefs of this church. Sometimes it's tempting to buy into the modern-day prosperity gospel that teaches that it's God's will that everyone be healthy wealthy and prosperous. I mean, who doesn't want to be healthy, wealthy and prosperous? Who doesn't want God who just comes alongside of us and makes all of our dreams happen, helps us live the American dream, helps us pursue every goal that we ever had and to be successful? And isn't that what most people want to be access to be successful, to be admired and appreciated by others? And there are many places in the Bible when taken out of context can very easily lead to that viewpoint and that perspective. I think of verses and passages like Psalm 103, verses 2 and 3. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all of your iniquities and who heals all of your diseases. God heals every single one of our diseases. That's, that's the God that we believe in. Or even beloved passages like Psalm 91. Listen as I read uh, different verses from Psalm 91. Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. For He will rescue you from every trap and protect you from deadly disease. He will cover you with His feathers. He will shelter you with His wings. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. Do not dread the disease that stalks in darkness, nor the disaster that strikes at midday. Though a thousand fall at your side, though ten thousand are dying around you, those evils will not touch you. If you make the Lord your refuge, if you make the Most High your shelter, no evil will conquer you. No plague will come near your home, for He will order His angels to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up with their hands so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. You will trample upon lions and cobras. You will crush fierce lions and serpents under your feet. The Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. When they call on me, I will answer and I will help them in their trouble. I will rescue and honor them. I will reward them with a long life and give them my salvation. Very, very attractive. Very easy to latch on to a prosperity gospel perspective. And because of passages like these and others, many have gone 
the route of the prosperity gospel. But I need to warn you that if you go down that path, there are no substantive, meaningful answers for suffering and disease and illness and death. There is only judgment and condemnation upon people that experience those things. Well, you must have had that coming. You must have deserved that. It must be because of some sin in your life. Because there's no basis in Scripture to argue why this God who wants us to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous would ever allow that. I've heard many of you talking about the Askey family and the funeral for the little girl yesterday. Um, I told you our youngest daughter, Sammy, was a babysitter for them and had Danielle, the mom, as a teacher. And, you know, there's no answer that you give to that, why a six-year-old girl was taken to be with the Lord. And, you know, it just the prosperity gospel cannot speak into that. It's just that those who experience these things deserve them because of some sin or failing in their life. That's the best that they can come up with. Now, I would agree that there is some pain and suffering in our lives that is the consequence of our own sin. That is definitely our own fault. Absolutely. No argument there. But much of the pain and suffering in our life as well is the result and the consequence of living in a broken and fallen world. And we discount that. We greatly underestimate that. Beyond this, sometimes God allows pain and suffering for his greater purposes and glory. And it makes no sense to us. We don't understand with finite minds how an infinite God works. The wisdom of God is foolishness for, for worldly creatures, as Corinthians says. So my advice is this, as we go into this theology of healing. You and I are not qualified to definitively determine whether someone's pain and suffering is their own fault and God is disciplining them, he is uh, refining them, or whether they're innocent victims of a fallen, broken world, or whether God is doing something for his grander purposes and glory that we just don't understand and appreciate at this point. But you can bet the farm and you can go to the bank that God always intentionally, purposefully uses everything that he allows in our life. That's a given. That's, that's a guarantee. Whatever God allows in your life, he allows it for your good, for your betterment, for your refining, for your transformation as he makes you into his image. God is redeeming, perfecting, and intentionally using everything that he allows. And God's word consistently affirms that and promises that. And we can go to the bank on that. We can we can go all in on that because that is not a maybe, that is a, that is a given, that is a guarantee. God allowed the woman of Matthew chapter 9, stories also in Mark 5 and Luke 8, to bleed for 12 long years and to suffer at the hands of many crooked doctors only to not receive healing. The same number of years that Jairus' daughter had been alive, only after 12 years to, to heal her and restore her. God allowed the the crippled man of uh, John chapter 5 who sat beside the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. God allowed those 38 years to pass before Jesus came along by that pool of Bethesda and told him to pick up his mat and walk. On and on and on. 
In John chapter 9, when the religious leaders asked why the adult man had been blind since birth, they said, was it because of his sin or the sin of his parents that he was born this way? Jesus responded, neither, but that the glory of God might be revealed in his life. Like, didn't even fit into their categories of thought and scripture and theology. I want you to hear me on this carefully. Healing involves much more than our physicality, than our physical condition, and yet we seem to ascribe our our physicality completely to healing, and, and nothing else applies, relational, emotional, spiritual, but healing is much more than our physical condition. And I believe from Scripture it is not God's will that everyone be healed. That's not his plan right now. And people like Johnny Erickson Tata and Nick Vujicic and a number of others testify to that. And even though we can't comprehend and appreciate it, sometimes God uses people with disabilities or infirmities in ways that go beyond what you and I could ever accomplish in order to advance the kingdom and bring glory to God. And that's a hard, hard ministry and life to live, but God is sovereign over all of that. We need to understand that. Super, super important. It's not God's will that everyone be physically healed, but it is God's will that every person, no matter what their situation, bring glory to God and lift Him up. That is God's will through each one of our lives. Well, I promised you earlier that we get to Exodus 15, and I'd like you to turn there now. As I read along, you can listen As I read, you can take the Bible under the seat in front of you. If you don't have one, it's the second book of the Bible. (coughs) Or you can just listen as I read. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation today. And we'll read most of Exodus 15, but not all of it. And in order to set up the context, I want to read to you the very two last verses of chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 30. The Lord rescued Israel from the hand of the Egyptians that day. And the Israelites saw the bodies of the Egyptians washed up on the seashore. When the people of Israel saw the mighty power of the Lord that had been unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him, and they put their faith in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is speaking of the parting of the Red Sea. Egypt had been in captivity. I mean, Israel had been in captivity in Egypt for all of those years, Uh, been slaves of the Egyptians, and then God delivered them and took them through the midst of the Red Sea. They crossed on dry land, and when the Egyptians came after them, God closed the sea upon them. And after this, this is what we read, chapter 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He has hurled both horse and rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and army he had hurled into the sea. The finest of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. Verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, is glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, smashes the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow those who rise against you. You unleash your blazing fury. It consumes them like straw. At the blast of your breath, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood straight like a wall. 
In the heart of the sea, the deep waters became hard. The enemy boasted, I will chase them and catch up with them. I will plunder them and consume them. I will flash my sword. My powerful hand will destroy them. Verse 10, but you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord, glorious in holiness, awesome in splendor, performing great wonders? You raised your right hand, and the wrath, your wrath swallowed our enemies. With your unfailing love, you led the people you have redeemed in your might. You guide them to your sacred home. Verse 19, when Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and charioteers rushed into the sea, the Lord brought the water crashing down on them. But the people of Israel had walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, the sister of Moses, the prophet, Aaron's sister as well, took a tambourine and led all the women as they played their tambourines and danced. And Miriam sang this song, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, and he has hurled both the horse and rider into the sea. Verse 22, Then Moses led the people of Israel away from the Red Sea, and they moved out into the desert of Shur. They traveled in this desert for three days without finding any water. As I was reading this, I was thinking of the old Gilligan's Island theme song, you know, three-hour two or a three-hour two, and I'm thinking, a three-day journey, a three-day journey. Oh, what a difference three days makes after this triumphant celebration. They traveled in this desert for three days without finding any water. Verse 22, when they came to the oasis at Mara, the water was too bitter to drink. So they called the place Mara, which means bitter. And then the people complained and turned against Moses. What are we going to drink, they demanded. So Moses cried out to the Lord for help, and the Lord showed him a tree. Moses threw it into the water and made the water good to drink. It made the water good to drink. It was there at Marah that the Lord set before them the following decree as a standard to test their faithfulness to him. He said, if you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, obeying his commands and keeping his decrees, then I will not make you suffer any of the diseases that I sent on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. There it is, Jehovah Rapha, the only place that it occurs in the Bible. I am the Lord who heals you. After leaving Marah, the Israelites traveled on to the oasis of Elim, where they found 12 springs and 70 date palm trees, and they camped there beside the water. A few observations about this passage before we draw some application and some principles. What the Israelites did is what we normally do when things go wrong. You know, we're on top of the mountain, we're praising the Lord, worshiping Him. The minute He doesn't do what we want Him to do or what we expect Him to do, we get uh, we kind of revert to our sin nature, and they complained. They grumbled. They went from thanksgiving to grumbling in three days. But if you're out in the middle of the desert and you go without water for three days, you're pretty beat up. You're pretty parched. You're pretty miserable. The Israelites couldn't drink the water because it was bitter, and the bitterness was an indication of something much worse. The water was probably contaminated, polluted, had bacteria, uh, disease in it. It was undrinkable. And you and I don't appreciate today 
the, the value and the benefit and the, the miracle of having clean water. We just don't. Living in America, sometimes we forget the importance of clean water for sustaining health. According to the United Nations statistics, close to 800 million people still don't have access to clean water each day. Today, in 2022, 8 million people across the world still do not have clean water on a daily basis. Totally fixable, totally reversible. The UN issued a statement not long ago that more people die annually from polluted water than from war. When a person doesn't live in an area where water purification techniques are in place, any contact with water could bring on illness or even death. And that's something that we don't appreciate, but the Israelites knew that. They lived that. That was, that was their existence. At Mara, God was telling the Israelites that they could either go the way of the unrighteous and experience the pain of the unrighteous if they adopted the lifestyles and the mindset of the unrighteous, or they could turn to him. And he was testing them, and he wanted them to know that he alone was their source of healing. He alone was their provision, their life. First, he showed this through the parting of the Red Sea, and then he would show it through the purification of the water as well. God had just parted the Red Sea before them, and think of the irony that they couldn't trust him to purify the water. I mean, he, massive ocean that he splits in two, and they walk on dry land. They've seen that, and they're grumbling because they have bitter, polluted water. And they're not thinking, well, maybe the same God who parted the water can purify it, you know. And we've talked about this numerous times in our study about how rarely do you and I face the same trial or uh, struggle or challenge in our life. But God is looking for us to take experiences in the past where he has delivered us and saved us and taught us lessons and apply those to present and future things that are not exactly the same, but they're close enough where we can connect the dots and say, well, I saw God do this here. I I trust he's got to do, he's got to have a reason. He's got to have a purpose. He knows what he's, you know, God is looking for that kind of faith from us. Sometimes God allows us to seemingly be in hopeless situations in our lives in order to direct our focus upon him and in order to reveal the true nature of our faith. We feel like giving in because There doesn't seem to be any solution. No one seems to be able to fix our situation, our problem. Our human resources are depleted. Israel's situation at Mara taught them, and it teaches us an important principle that we can remember when we're facing trouble. God has a purpose for our pain. That's another thing we should never, ever doubt. God always has a purpose for our pain. The pain is never meaningless. It is never just random. It is never chance. It is always intentional. It is always purposeful. God has a purpose for our pain. In verse 25, it tells us that he used the water as a test. Again, you saw me part the seed. Do you trust me to purify the water? And this is the place where God reveals his name. Trials and tests do at least two things for us. They teach us at least two things. One, they demonstrate whether we've been paying attention to the lessons that we've learned. And secondly, they give God an opportunity to show us another aspect or dimension of who he is. 
And God does that here. As we've seen, every time God reveals a new name to his people, it reveals a new thing about his character and his person and about who he is for them to learn. Now, think about this for a moment, and I kind of struggle with this this week. <clears throat> the Israelites weren't really sick and, needy, and in need of healing at this point. If I was God, I would have introduced my name as Jehovah Rapha when they complained against Moses and God sent fiery serpents that bit them. And Moses had to affix that standard with the bronze serpent in the wilderness. And whoever looked to that was healed. That would have been the point where I would have said, look, I'm Jehovah Rapha. Because here, it was if you are disobedient and if you go the way of the surrounding nations, then I will afflict you with diseases that you will need me to heal you from. And that's where God introduces his name. But it's just interesting. So there's this. There's this challenge here that if you follow the, the mindset and the culture around you, you're going to incur the diseases and the consequences that they incur. If you follow me, you'll find life and blessing. And so the second thing on the outline I want to talk about today is the curse. Throughout the Bible, we read about the curse. And I want to explain that for a moment. When Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit in the garden, sin and evil entered the world and the human experience for the first time. And in short, we call this the curse. The ground became laborious in order to till it and to grow fruit and vegetables and things that would sustain life. Before, it would, it, we get this picture that it was just this harmonious relationship between people and the land, and they lived off of it, and everything was wonderful. But now there were weeds, and the ground was tough, and it took work to you know, cultivate it and grow things. Part of the curse. God warned his people many times in the Old Testament with passages like the following in Deuteronomy 11. He said, look today I am giving you a choice between a blessing and a curse. You will be blessed if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I am giving you today. But you will be cursed if you reject the commands of the Lord your God and turn away from him and worship the gods that you have not known before. Deuteronomy 28 is a typical representative verse and passage of God's continual warning to his people to either choose him and find life or go the way of foreign gods and foreign cultures and incur a curse and punishment. Deuteronomy 28 says, If you are not careful to observe all of the words of this law which are written in this book, to fear this... Uh, this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues on you and your descendants, even uh, severe and lasting plagues and miserable and chronic diseases and sicknesses. He will bring back on you all of the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid and they will cling to you. What a picture. They're just going to follow you and cling to you and you won't be able to get rid of them if you turn your back on God, if you're disobedient to him. So God is continually setting this choice between his people of a blessing or a curse. When Aaron and Miriam complained to God and ragged on their brother Moses, God struck them with leprosy. And it's interesting because when Moses prays for his sister Miriam, that's the first time that the word, the Hebrew word Rapha, healing, is used in the Old Testament. Kind of an interesting side note. In Numbers 21, 
As I referred to a few moments ago, when the Israelites complained against God, God sent fiery serpents so that Moses had to erect the standard with the bronze serpent, and whoever looked to that was healed. On the other hand, when Naaman obeyed God, he received healing in his body, 2 Kings chapter 5. When Daniel obeyed God, he became healthier than all of the other youths of Babylon. We see this constant dichotomy and separation between those who follow God and obey his statutes and commands and those who do their own thing and follow the way of foreign gods and the culture. And God is constantly giving his people this choice. Doing life God's way is the secret to healing and freedom from the things that weigh us down. I love the heart of God that's uh, described in Deuteronomy 30. Listen to what God says. He says, Today I have given you a choice between life and death, between blessing and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice that you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. You can make this choice by loving the Lord your God and obeying him and committing yourself firmly to him. This is the key to your life. And if you love and obey the Lord, you will live long in the land that the Lord swore to give your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You hear the heart of God? Not do whatever you want, and if you screw up, I'm going to just smite you. But oh, oh that you would choose life. Oh, that you would get it through your thick skull that when you follow what I've commanded, it brings about life and freedom and prosperity and long life in the land that I've given you. This, in short, is the curse. Disobeying God brings a curse. It's a curse that gets lived out in our life. And we've seen that in the lives of many people that have turned their back on God or wandered from God. Blessing results from following God. The third thing I want to talk about today as we kind of bring this all together is the curse reverser, the one who reverses the curse is God and also Jesus Christ, his only son, God in human flesh. The one who reverses the curse is God and specifically Jesus. The Israelites needed protection from the disease-carrying bitter waters of Marah and God provided a tree to make the water sweet. Throwing a tree in the water seemed odd. It seemed unconventional. But when we do the thing that God has instructed us to do, that's when we see the power of God begin to work. That's when we see his healing. That's when we see what's bitter becoming sweet. When God says, I want you to march around Jericho and blow horns for seven days, you're like, are you nuts? No, I'm God. I know what I'm doing. You know, do that, you know. Doing what God commands us to do, whether it makes sense or not. I want you to notice with me for a moment the symbolism in the territory that we've covered today. A curse entered the world through a forbidden tree, namely the fruit of a forbidden tree that Adam and Eve ate of. Sometime later, the fruit of a tree namely gopher wood, was fashioned into a boat that saved Noah and his family from God's curse, the flood. During the Israelites' wandering, wilderness wandering, a bronze serpent lifted up, saved, and healed all who looked to it for help. John's Gospel, chapter 3, tells us, 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up upon the cross, that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Another tree, the cross, has sweetened the bitter waters of our sinful human existence. And in Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul beautifully explains how Christ has reversed the curse for those who have accepted him as Savior and Lord. He writes in Galatians 3, verse 10, But those who depend upon the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scriptures say, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all of the commands that are written in God's book of the law. Verse 13, But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. Christ has reversed the curse when he hung on the cross and took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. Scripture says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God through him. Jesus was a curse for us that we might have a restored relationship with God. Back in Exodus 15, our passage today, verse 27, it informed us that then the Israelites came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water. Not just pools of clean water, but springs of water bubbling up and at least 70 date palm trees that they could eat of. They had more than enough at this point. After God taught the Israelites and revealed to them his name, Jehovah Rapha, he immediately took them to Elam, where there was more than enough for them. But notice that they had to pass through Marah first. They had to experience the bitter before God delivered and gave them everything that he intended for them. They got Elam by going through the test at Marah. They discovered Elam once they discovered Jehovah Rapha. And I believe God is offering us life and everything our heart desires today through Jesus Christ. John chapter 7, one of my favorite passages, they're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. And it involves the priests going from the temple with water jugs to the pool of Siloam, which was at least a mile away, filling it with water, carrying the heavy jugs back, sloshing all over the place, and pouring it over the altar. And they would do that because in the end times it says that water will flow from the the temple and give life to the nations. And so they're trying to usher that in and reenact that and bring that, you know, about. And for seven days they laboriously do that. And it's on the seventh day that Jesus makes that proclamation, that declaration, I am a river of life. I am the living water that if anyone drinks of me will never thirst again. It's the same thing he said to the woman at the well. If you knew who it was who was talking to you, you would ask him and he would give you living water. And she says, Lord, give me this water that I don't have to come to this stinking well anymore. And Jesus says, a day is soon coming when people will not worship God at Jerusalem or here by this well or any of the sacred spots because they'll go directly to God through me. That's what he talked about. And Jesus is offering us that life-giving water. There's a story that I've shared before, but I want to close with it today because it kind of sums everything up beautifully. The story is told of a young boy who discovered a cocoon in a backyard tree. He studied the cocoon carefully, looking for some sign of life. 
At last, several days later, the boy saw what had been, he had been waiting for. Inside the filmy shell, a newly formed butterfly was struggling to get out. Filled with compassion for the tiny creature, the boy used his pocket knife to enlarge the hole. Exhausted, the butterfly tumbled out and just lay there. Because the boy didn't realize that the struggle to escape was designed to strengthen the butterfly's muscles and prepare it for flight. And I read that and I thought, your struggle and my struggle is divinely designed and intended by God for our flight and for our perfection. God is using your trial, your struggle, my challenge, divinely, sovereignly, to grow us into his image. Often, the path to the mountaintop that we desire goes through a lot of valleys. Often, the journey to Elim necessitates first experiencing the bitter waters of Mara. The trials and the struggles that we so desperately want to escape from and avoid altogether are purposely planned by a sovereign, divine God to bring about our ultimate and complete healing because that's the plan of Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals us. Let's pray. Well, God, as I think about so many that are suffering right now, as I think about the Aske family, as I think about many, many, many people who come to mind that are dealing with illnesses and diseases and cancer and situations that they never thought that they would go through as a follower of you. <laughs> 